1: Engineering your success.
2: This is a podcast from Minute Media.
0: All right, we're back. Great stuff, Kevin O'Malley, Catholic Athletes for Christ uh, organization, uh, Gil Hodges' film. I want to thank Kevin for joining me. Joined me actually about a week after the uh, announcement of Gil Hodges in the Hall of Fame and. Obviously, we wanted – I was trying to figure out when was the right time to run this. Do we run it as part of a show, as like a feature? And here we are. We're talking about free agency and Buck Showalter being hired as the Mets manager. And I'm like, no, let's do a holiday show, a New Year's show about Gil, and and I'll get to this in a minute. Really, first baseman in the Hall of Fame because it's fascinating to me how few there are, Gil being the 16th. Uh, depending on the criteria, I think I, I put like on baseball reference, 80% of the uh, of their playing time at first base, and Gil came up as a catcher, but he played some other positions throughout his career, but mainly first base. One other thing as we wrap up the whole Gil Hodges thing, which is, to me, really fascinating. So the Dodger narrative, and and I I had mentioned it with Kevin, I had grown, grown up in Brooklyn. So if the Mets didn't come into existence, there's probably a pretty good chance I'd have been a Dodgers fan. I don't think I ever would have been a Yankees fan, but you never know. And you can see as I talk about the yoke around the neck of this Mets organization after all the failure, all the crazy stuff that has gone on since 1986. It's almost like that game six in 1986 with Buckner and the ball and the two outs and nobody on and this historic season going up in, in flames that maybe there was some kind of. Uh, deal with uh, uh, an entity that said you're going to have all this pain and frustration for so many years but we'll give you this world series and and maybe back in 1986 Mets fans would have signed up for that but you know who knows so but anyway the Dodgers had kind of over a 15 year period their own yoke around their neck now they had a lot more success than the Mets But starting in 1941, when they lost to the Yankees in the World Series, they lost five consecutive World Series to them. They lost in 1947. They lost in 1949, 52, and 53. And oh, by the way, they had the 1951 Bobby Thompson shot heard around the world in the middle of all that. They lose a Game 7 in Brooklyn to the Yankees when they lose Game 7 of the World Series in 1947. So when they finally win in 1955, and Gil, and you'll hear about this in the film – Gill drives in the only two runs at a 2-0 victory in Game 7 in Yankee Stadium, which, uh, look, it may not be Yankee Stadium circa 1997 with all the ghosts, but a difficult place to play against a team that's beaten you time and time and time and time again. And think about all the disappointment. Yes, success, winning pennants, getting to a game 163-plus with... The against the Giants in 1951. So it, it's not like these were wasted seasons. It's not like they were second division clubs, you know, for 15 years, and then all of a sudden they had this, you know, run in 1955. That's a lot of baggage. That's a lot of almost. And sometimes, almost winning, almost getting to the mountaintop, and losing hurts more than anything. So, Gil, to me, part of this whole encompassing of an historic moment, less talked about, is that Game Seven driving in both runs and winning at Yankee Stadium to finally get the yoke off their neck, finally get the championship. Obviously, the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. They go west a couple of years later. They win again uh, in, in in Los Angeles, and, and Gil was a part of that team, and that was a, a much different team, a much more dominant Dodger team, and, and, and away you go. So that puts a little cherry on top. We'll hear, and we'll round out the program in a bit. I just want to get into something else. You'll hear a clip from Joan Hodges, uh, Gil's widow, uh, an interview I did about 10 years ago uh, back on the old NY Baseball Digest uh, podcast. Uh, this was not a WGBB uh, interview. It was a, I think it was a NY Baseball Digest podcast interview. So you'll hear from that. But first, um, Keith Hernandez and John Olrood. Now that we've kind of talked about Gil and Gil's made his way into the Hall of Fame, I think it's really important to start examining first baseman in the Hall of Fame. And like I said, there's not that many. And I think both Keith Hernandez and John Olrood have great cases to become Hall of Famers. I know that Fred McGriff probably has that case, and uh, you could maybe even put Carlos Delgado into that conversation. That's for another day. Let's just talk about those that are near and dear to Mets fans' hearts, and it's those two guys, uh, Keith Hernandez and John Olrood. First with Keith, I think after going through the same criteria that I went with Gil, uh, talking about body of work, uh, historic moments, the look in the field, the intangibles, a period of dominance. Keith, to me, and he only got, at the, I think at his highest, he got 10 or 11% of the vote. He never really cracked much out of that. I mean, Steve Garvey got more support for the Hall of Fame than Keith Hernandez. I mean, think about that. Steve Garvey got more support. It shows, shows you what kind of popularity contest it could be, the Hall of Fame with the writers. And maybe the Pittsburgh cocaine trial and Keith's, who was always accessible, at least in New York, but maybe some of his mercurial ways and uh, uh, clubhouse lawyer antics, maybe that did him in. Uh, But back in 2009, I I believe it was 2009, Kashta Kennedy was writing for Sports Illustrated, and he wrote an article, and I think this was about five years or so after Keith fell off the ballot, and he talked about why he thought Keith Hernandez was a Hall of Famer, and I brought him on my old NYBD podcast, and I asked him, well, Kostya... You're on the on the stand now. Uh, you know, we're doing a Hall of Fame trial. Tell me why you think Keith Hernandez is a Hall of Famer. And I went into the vault. So you're getting a lot of vault today. I went into the vault, and I found this. But first, the Knuckleheads podcast brings on some of the best NBA players, past and present, to have totally unguarded conversations about sports culture and basketball nostalgia. NBA veterans Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles are lifelong friends and bona fide truth tellers. Listen as they invite special guests, high-profile athletes, musicians, and entertainers to get brutally honest about everything from current events to untold stories from the golden era of sports and culture. Named for the on-court celebration they made wildly popular, this unfiltered, hilarious, and surprising podcast is like playing NBA 2K with no fouls. Check out the Knuckleheads podcast. Guests this season include Kevin Durant, Jason Tatum, Sue Bird, and DeMar DeRozan. Let him know that Mike Silver from the Talkin' Mets podcast sent you. Well,
3: all right, well there's a couple of things. Um, one is, you know, let's just go with the statistics first really briefly. Obviously, he doesn't hit for the power that that a lot of uh, corner uh, position players have hit for who've made the Hall of Fame. He has a tremendous on-base percentage, though, basically the same as Tony Gwynn's, and he hit for better power than he did, uh, than, than Gwynn did. So, you know, he, he walked a lot, obviously, uh, he was an MVP, co-MVP, Um and, you know, he hit, hit over 300, so all those stats are there. He also, for what it's worth, he led the league in game-winning RBI when it was there, so he had some offensive statistics, five all-star teams that, that makes a case. But the other larger case is, you know, the way he played defensively, you know, a lot of people say, oh well, first base, you know, I mean, if Jason Giambi can play first base, then how hard can it be? And that's true. But what Keith did, if anybody saw that, saw him play, it's completely transformed the position. I guess that's not even right to say. He played it the way nobody has played it before or since and had such a profound impact on the game. Um, He he threw guys out on the bases all the time. He had over 1,600 career assists, which is by far the most of anybody in the National League and only Eddie Murray, who's played uh, about 400 more games, that had more. Um, And basically he would take the sacrifice bunt out of the – out of the hands of, of the opposition, in a lot of cases, he would come right down, stand in front of the uh, stand in front of the batter, basically, so that he didn't have a chance to to bunt. To, to, to Opposing managers would say they they didn't want to do it because they'd get a force out of second, and they'd have their pitchers on on uh, on the bases. So his the way he he took over a game defensively. He also was, and anybody who saw the mess in those, Years and saw how into the game he was in terms of, you know, he would. Uh, he didn't officially have pitch calling responsibilities, but he's very involved in like in calling pitches and what pitches uh, should go in particular spots. Um, he, you know, sort of controlled ran the, ran the game on the field, and that's even with Gary Carter there, who is obviously a Hall of Fame fame uh, catcher. That uh, obviously Keith and Gary didn't play together the whole time, but even in their sort of prime years with the Mets, then. Um, You know, he, he was that leader on the field. Uh, you know, if you look at, there there were four guys who went on to wear Keith's uniform number 17 just as a tribute to him because they just completely admired his knowledge and savvy on the field. Uh, so, you know, however you look at it, this guy was, you know, he was the most interesting guy to watch. He was arguably the guy who was having the most impact on a particular game, excepting, of course, the, the pitcher. Uh, and, are, you know, that's not the whole case, but that's a good outline of the case why I think he, he deserves to be in. I'm going to say it,
0: not just because I'm sitting here with you. but But I, you know, when I work with you, I like to go back and look at some numbers. Okay. How you were not in the Hall of Fame is oh, beyond me. I won't even
4: go too crazy on that. That's okay. You know, when it's all said and done and,
0: and I turn to dust, it won't matter. Not convinced they have to listen to Kasha Kennedy? Well, let me throw you some things about why Keith Hernandez is a Hall of Famer, and I hope that a future veterans committee, really considers him. um, Let's just go by the stats. I mean, yeah, the two championships, one in St. Louis, one in Brooklyn, Hall of Famer in both those cities. So, uh, you know, he's already got the tier below done in that sense. You go from 1978, let's take a 10-year period, and Keith started to become an impact player a couple of years before, but let's say 1978, the year before he was co-MVP with Willie Stargell, from 1978 to 1988, he was the seventh most valuable player in wind shares in all of baseball. All of baseball, and he was the number one first baseman by a hair. By a little less than a win over Eddie Murray, who's a Hall of Famer. Nobody else came close. There's no other first baseman within, you know, Jack Clark far away. I mean, no, nobody else in in his uh, sphere. And you heard some of the offensive comparisons that that Kostya Kennedy did to Tony Gwynn. I'll put those aside. You know who was ahead of Keith in terms of of valuable players in that 10-year period? Here's some of the names. Andre Dawson, Gary Carter, Robin Yount, George Brett, Ricky Henderson, Mike Schmidt. This guy was in this same class. He didn't hit the home runs that these guys hit. But he was a money ball player. He walked a lot. Didn't strike out a lot. Really only started striking out until later in his career when he was over the hill and his bat was slowing down. And anybody... I mean, we talk about Ozzy Smith revolutionizing the shortstop position or Ray Ordonez is what he did as a Met in the 90s, what he did at shortstop. Keith was that at first base. I think part of it is that first base is looked at a position where you just throw a former catcher or a fat guy who hits home runs like Mo Vaughn and, and you know, everything else, the athleticism doesn't count. You've seen the, the, the revolutionary plays on the bunt. I mean, think about how big that is when you can't get a bunt down because the first baseman is basically uh, – a foot away from you at home plate. He's transcendent at the position. 11 gold gloves, leadership, pitch calling, all these intangibles, and the numbers really are there. I mean, he fell off because his body started to break down after 1988, but 11 straight gold gloves, the kind of offensive production, the best, over that period, he was the best first baseman in all of baseball ahead of a Hall of Famer, Eddie Murray, and the rest is not even close. Not even close. And, you know, he ranks very well overall as you get him in. He's, and he certainly is, in a lot of ways, when you look at the all encompassing here, he doesn't have the managerial career. But, oh, you heard that. You heard that little funny quip at the end of that whole thing. But, oh, you know, when I'm dust, I threw that in. He's got this whole broadcasting career where he's kind of a modern day Phil Rizzuto. I mean, you could easily say he's a Hall of Fame broadcaster for what he's brought to the table with uh, Ron Darling and Gary Gary Cohen. Top 10 first baseman all time, bar none. And he got very little support on a Hall of Fame ballot. Shame on the BBWAA. Yeah, you've got the whole, and I guess we go back to the whole debate earlier with Gil Hodges about integrity, the whole cocaine thing. But people make mistakes, and I think Keith has done his penance, and he seems to be a different and better person because of it. And he's out there hanging out with a cat down in Jupiter, Florida now. I don't think he's partying partying at a modern-day Studio 54. Let's put it that way. So I think it's an obvious case. I think Mets fans would agree. I used to think it's a weaker case, and I know that the Yankee fans would don Mattingly, but he's better than Mattingly. Better than Mattingly. By a lot. Mattingly had a very short span of dominance. He didn't have the 10-year span. Keith did, and he won a championship, but not one, but two organizations, and trans, he was a a a transitional, transformative figure in those organizations, iconic figure for both those organizations, especially the Mets. Maybe, you know, everyone talks about Carter, the Hernandez trade might have been the, and they both were important, but Hernandez was the first domino to really bring them to respectability and bring that young team into a more serious conversation with winning uh, when he was brought over in 1983, and stayed. Now, Olerud's different, because you know, won a few gold gloves after he left the Mets. And I'll tell you, John Olerud's three-year period, 98, 97, 98, 99, maybe the best three seasons offensively of any first baseman in Mets history. I mean, I guess Pete Alonso you could talk about, but Pete's a home run hitter. Olerud was an on-base hitting machine. He was a guy that had a combination of of Brand, a little bit of Brandon Nimmo in him, too quiet guy, you know, wore the hat, so he made a little bit of a, you know, name for himself on that. I always felt if Olerud was on the 2000 Mets, that would have been a much better team. I know it was a team that won in the 90s in terms of games, but I think they would have won a championship with Olerud at first base. They might have been more competitive after that with Olerud at first base. I think it, it, it threw off the balance of the lineup. Todd Zeal was never the same type of hitter or player, but when you start to look at John Ullrude and you do another 10-year period, Ullrude is more of an offense on-base guy. There's only one first baseman better from 1993 to 2003. Remember in 93, he was flirting with 400 for a while in Toronto? And that's Jeff Badwell, a Hall of Famer. Better than McGuire, better than Helton, who's up for discussion, better than Delgado, better than Mark Grace, better than Fred McGriff, better than Will Clark. And we could get into more of the Will Clark, McGriff, guys like that. So I think the Veterans Committee should consider Old Root. And I know he got very little, so I don't even think he got a, uh, 1% of the support when he was up in 2011. And it's hard because of the era that he played in. But I think that what we learn, and and, and I want to wrap up here and get to the the vault and Joan Hodges, Gil Hodges' widow. I think the learning that we have with Gil Hodges is that He's kind of breaking the cellophane off on us examining other positions. It's not just about the hall of fame. We're past big hall, small hall. We're getting into the hall of very good. You got DH's coming in, Harold Baines, Edgar Martinez, Big Poppy's probably gonna get in, and he was a DH. You gotta start looking at some of these other guys, especially from the eras like the eighties and nineties, guys that kind of fall beneath the designer names. I mean, Steve Garvey gets more support than than Keith. I mean, Olds, we better than Steve Garvey, too. Look at the numbers. Now, I didn't see, you know, it goes back to the intangibles and off the field and all the other stuff. I wasn't around for Steve Garvey's career. Politician, I think he was a you know politician, too, at some point, maybe. I know, well, he's a woman. I you know, He was into the ladies. Let's, let's not call him any names. He was into the ladies. We know that. Steve Garvey. Anyway. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're not done with Gil Hodges. You're going to hear another clip out of the vault. Joan Hodges, Gil's widow, joined me about 10 years ago, and I got her perspective on Gil and being part of the Dodger family while they were going through that period I talked about, losing to the Yankees, losing to the Yankees, almost winning. And I think you'll hear an environment of a different type of era of baseball where you heard Kevin O'Malley say, Joan Hodges still lives in the old house in Flatbush in Brooklyn. I mean, think about all these years later. It truly was a community. The team was part of the community. It was a big league team, but it was almost like that small-town college atmosphere. And I think Mrs. Hodges will give you that feeling. And I certainly got that feeling when I did that interview about 10 years ago. So sit back, relax, not done yet. Enjoy this special edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on New Year. And you'll hear from the vault, Joan Hodges, right after this. Mets fans love David Wright. Anthony DeComo, author of the book, The Captain, David Wright's memoir, joined the Talking Mets podcast and answered my question about his thoughts on the legacy of the former Mets captain.
5: Well, I think he's also a player that you can't judge solely on what he did on the field because he meant so much to the franchise. He, uh, both from leadership capacity, he was obviously named the fourth captain in franchise history, Um, but just the way that he represented the team, continues to represent the team. You know, he meant more than just your typical, not not that there's ever a typical seven-time All-Star, but he meant more than your typical seven-time All-Star. So, yes, I think there's certainly disappointment that he couldn't replicate those Hall of Fame-caliber years into his 30s and be that guy and ultimately make it to Cooperstown uh, because he was that good at the peak of his prime. Uh, but I think when you look back at his career on balance, still the best position player in Mets history. Um, you know, one of the better players that we've seen here in New York in a long, long time. And you take the fact that he was that hall of fame caliber player, at least for a while, you package together for the, everything that I just said in terms of what he did for the franchise, what he did to legitimize. I mean, he made this a Mets town for a while there in the, in the mid two thousands. And that takes some doing. So package it all together, package it with the leadership, the fact that he was the captain, the fact that when you think New York Mets, even today, a couple years after he played his final game, you still think David Wright, he's still one of the more prominent names that pops immediately into your head. Uh, You know, I I think you can't really put a measure on that in terms of its impactfulness. So, yeah, it it was a successful career by any stretch, I think it's fair to say.
0: Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com.
6: We're back, and I am joined by the wife of uh, Gil Hodges, as everyone knows from his time with the Brooklyn Dodgers, as well as manager of the New York Mets, Mrs. Uh, Joan Hodges. And she's joined us for a couple of minutes, as uh, we remember Gil Hodges. Uh, thanks for joining us, Mrs. Hodges. How are you?
4: Very well, thank
6: you. Uh, so just to think about it, you know, fans, even today, all these years later, still have an affinity for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Does that surprise you after all these years?
4: As do I. No it, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. I was born in Brooklyn, and uh, I was always, the two loves of my life was like our great mayor, Giuliani, was the opera and uh, baseball, and of course, I was fortunate enough to be born in this city that had the best, as far as I'm concerned, in, <laughs> in the world, but no, I was always a Dodger fan. Uh, and certainly not when they moved, uh, you know, the, 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 the old Dodgers and, and, and our team and teammates uh, will always have a special place in my heart. But, of course, the Mets became our team.
6: You, you mentioned the move. There was always a connection with the fans of Brooklyn, the players, more so than what you see today.
4: Oh, by talk about
6: that. I mean, talk about that and how tough it was, even for the players after the team went out from the West Coast.
4: We were, it, it was a family. We were a family. We, we weren't, uh, you know, just, uh, ball players who came out and took their positions and played the game. Uh, we were very, very close. And, uh, you know, when I was married and I was married in December, Gil was going to, uh, school at the time. He was in college, St. Joseph's College. No, no, at that time he was in uh, um, Rensselaer, in Indiana. Well, anyhow, uh, we get married during the two weeks off uh, at Christmas time. And when I went to spring training and met Mr. Ricky, he uh, explained to me that we're not just, uh, you know, a baseball team. We're a family. And we have to the wives have to be like sisters, as the ball players are like brothers, and that's what makes the team and that's so true, very, very true. And until today, for those that are left, we still have we still have enormous respect and, and love for each other.
6: It, that probably had something to do. I mean, the Dodgers, obviously, they had trouble beating the Yankees, but they won in 1955. They are one of the more underrated teams of all time. They had so many great seasons, even though they may not have won the championship. It sounds like because of that chemistry, because of the fact that everyone got along and, and really pulled for one another, oh, that, that that that, was, that played into their success.
4: Yes, very much so. That's very important. They're very important. I feel it today, you know, and I watch the games. And of course, everything is so different, everything. And we won't go into that, but uh, that's very important. It's just like your very own family.
6: You still, you still watch baseball? Are you are you still a Mets fan? or Do you watch the Dodgers? What What I'm do you a, take?
4: I'm a Mets fan. I'm a Mets fan, and this is going to floor you. And I'm a Yankee fan, not when they play us.
2: <laughs> not
4: when they play us, but other than that, it's a New York team and a team that we're we should be and are very proud of. They've certainly given us
6: many many championships
4: and uh, why not? I wouldn't root for any other team except the Yankees.
6: I uh, have with me uh, Mrs. Gil She's catching up with us for a couple of minutes here. What are one or two uh, memories on the field that when you think of your uh, your husband come to mind when someone brings him up? Is there a, a game or a, a situation that first comes to your mind?
4: Well, uh, I, I must say, uh, the night he hit the fourth home run uh Johnny Antonelli. Uh I was sitting next to, and, and as you know, that's never been done in baseball history. I was sitting next to uh, Don Newcomb's father, who was on my left and my cousin was on my right. And I couldn't look. I covered my eyes. I, I had such palpitations, and then I just couldn't look, you know. And when he did hit it, Mr. Newcomb just jumped up on his feet and he said, Joni, Joni, take your hands off your eyes, honey. It's going to center field. <laughs> and I'll never, ever forget that.
6: Oh, wow. And 1955 has to still be, after all those years of just missing, winning the championship. Talk, talk about what that meant to those guys and obviously to, uh, to, to the wives who were part of that extended family.
4: As I said, you know how a family
6: uh, is that
4: when something like that—you know—when we when we when we joy and overjoy together, it's something you really truly can't put into words. You really can't. It's something that 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 it, it's so hard for me to tell you that. But uh, it, it was it was it was like a, a miracle. I mean, it's something that that you. That happened. We we was over, and we were so happy it was over. Uh, it it was just the, uh, and you know I I had the the joy of, of of seeing Gil uh make championships a championship team out of the New York Mets, and when he came here, uh at that time unfortunately they were known as the, as the clowns of baseball. But uh, in a very very short time, they became the champions, and and that was a tremendous thrill and honor for us. Uh, those are, those are things that there, you can't really put into words. You really can't. They they, they may, and they stay with you the rest of your life.
6: It sounds like you can remember it just like yesterday. It
4: uh, do you yes. still have
6: those games vividly in your mind.
4: Oh yes, definitely. I, I you know I have four children and uh, six grandchildren and four great-grandchildren, yet with all that I've been through, and I'm going to be 85 years old, I have so many things in my baseball life, which was 61, is 61 years, um, that holds so much, so much love, and, and, and it's, you know, just recently losing Duke Snyder, it was like losing a member of the family. Uh, all all of them, you know, and things like that happened. It, it's hard to explain. We weren't just, uh, you know, we weren't just teammates. It, it truly was family.
6: Right. And Duke is another one, very underrated. When you look at his numbers When and you saw him play, I didn't, but... When you look back, especially at not only Duke's numbers but Gill, these were just tremendous hitters. And uh sometimes you, you forget that as time goes on, they still remember, but you you forget how good they really were. They were.
4: They they truly, truly were. It was just unbelievable to see you know all of them. You can't say I mean you know uh, Carl Frillo, uh, You know God when he would throw with that rifle arm, and uh, so many of them. Um, Really short, uh, it, it was just—it was just—it was great. It was absolutely great. They're, they're, they're wonderful memories to cherish.
6: What about uh, when he became a manager? Did the Gill—I uh, mean, obviously, he, you, you care as a player, you get into it, and you, you, did he did he take losses home more as a manager uh, than versus as a player when he started to run the Mets?
4: You know, we were in Washington. Bill was managing the Washington Senators when he found out. And uh, I said, honey, I-, I would think you would be so overjoyed. He said, I'm very, very happy to be going home. And to." he said, but remember, he said, I, I owe those fans a lot. Hmm. He said, they loved me as I loved them. He said, and I've got a job ahead of me, and I don't want to let them down. I said to him, you just do the best you can. And remember, those fans that you just talked about know that and will honor that.
6: And and he goes to New York. He, he comes to the Mets, and he wins a World Series in 1969. Compare that to 1955. I mean, it's, did, was that a different type of experience for him, or was that equally or perhaps more special for him because of what he accomplished with that group versus what he did with the Dodgers? Well,
4: remember now that he spent so many more years with the with the Dodgers than he did the Mets. Uh, we were with the Dodgers how many years? I forget now. uh 18 or 19.
6: Yeah, about 16 to 18 years, right? Yeah. yeah. And
4: uh, so that's a long time. And remember, we never had a championship. And uh, he knocked in the only two runs of that last game to give us our championship. So um, having it here was an tr- enormous thrill, but you can't really... You can't really say, well, naturally, you know, we're home and we're this, and it's our team, and this and that. You can't erase all those other years. It's not easy.
6: Right. It it definitely is a long time. Have you been to the city field yet, the new ballpark? Oh yes, of course. Does it remind you of Ebbets Field? I I wasn't. I never saw Ebbets Field, but I know some people feel that especially with the Jackie Robinson rotunda and the outside? Does it remind you of that old ballpark a little bit?
4: Well, um, yes, a little bit, because remember, Evansville was a lot smaller. And uh, so was the rotunda. It was shaped the same, but um, the rotunda on on the inside was different. You know, we had all those windows and so forth and so on. So to to compare the Rotundas, um, I think there is a little difference there.
6: Absolutely. Anybody on this uh, edition of the Mets team, do they remind you of your husband? Are there any players out there that you look at and say, wow, that reminds me of Gil? That's a tough question. I threw, I had to throw, I you one tough question. That did, yeah, and you
4: did. You did. You threw me a real curveball, as they would say in baseball. And I'm not too good at hitting curveballs. Well, we'll give you a, can...
6: we'll give you a pass on that one. Okay. They'll give you a, a pass on that one. Now, do you have, I know there's the Gil Hodges organization. Do you have anything that you want the listeners to know about coming out or anything? I know Gil's uh, birthday was just recently. Is there anything you'd like to let the listeners know about? Just uh, one last thing before we let you go.
4: Not really. I think those that knew him know of him and uh, and I, who am still here, thank them with all my heart for the love and devotion and respect that they always showed him. And I want them to always remember he was extremely appreciative
6: of it. Uh, absolutely. Well, Mrs. Hodges, thank you so much for being generous at your time. We do remember, Gil, great catching up and great stories, and you take care of yourself and and hope to speak to you soon, okay? Thank
0: you. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at mikesilva at... TalkinMetsPodcast.com No G TalkinMetsPodcast.com Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. I thought that uh, this was an action-packed episode and actually as I'm going through it, I decided to break it up into part one and part two. Normally I don't like doing that and I've thought about actually doing kind of like each segment individually. Believe it or not, when I was on ESPN Radio and I used to upload my ESPN Radio shows to this very same feed, this feed has gone through multiple transformations over the course of 15 years. It's kind of amazing if you go back into the original RSS feed. And that's why I'm, I'm so humbled to have so many loyal listeners. Some have been following since 2007 when this all started. But And if you have been following since 2007, I'd like to hear from you because, I don't know, I think I think I lost a few people along the way, too. But um, I used to upload each hour on those ESPN shows. And I don't know. I don't know if I want to do in different segments. Um, I think you lose a little flow, but maybe it'll be easier. Give me some feedback. Mike podcast.com. No, G. Send me some feedback. Let me know um, what your thoughts are. So this one I did in a two-parter. I thought it was important. You got to hear the Gil Hodges story. Gil Hodges film. Then you got to hear my thoughts on the Hall of Fame and first baseman and uh, Gil's widow, Joan Hodges in the second part. And then we wrap up right here. So with that, I want to wish everybody a happy new year. Obviously, the baseball is in a lockout. So we're kind of on freeze. What is this? I haven't been doing it. I always promised I was going to do a lockout day, whatever. So what is this? Lockout day 28 now? It's like we're a hostage crisis. And uh, as I predicted, and it's Kind of come into fruition, and I, I was hoping I would be wrong. Uh, I think we're going to see more action closer to Valentine's Day than we do New Year. But post New Year, I think it'll be interesting how the uh, how things develop. You know, do they even want to start spring training on time now with all the stuff that's going on with the pandemic out there and whatnot you know who knows what you know that's going to bring as january rolls into february and and spring training in arizona and florida so maybe it's a, a good thing in some cases to delay uh spring training and possibly the start of the season but we'll see and uh you know i, I think there'll be tons of baseball to talk about what will we do i'm looking at other vaults i think there's a lot of vault that uh you know may not have been as my viewership has grown over the years maybe it wasn't as well, listen to. I'm looking at maybe doing features. I have a really fun feature with uh, another uh, member of the podcasting community that I want to do in, in in January, and I believe that's what we're going to do January 9th, So stay tuned for that. It's is it's really interesting. It's an idea I I, I have, and I don't want to give too much away, but I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, the person I'm bringing in has a really good podcast. And if and if you don't know about him, I'll make sure you know about him after he comes on the program. So stay tuned for that. And then we'll see what develops with the lockout and baseball 2022. And and obviously what will be crazy is when that opens up and all the remaining free agents are looking for homes, especially if you only have a couple of weeks before spring training, that's going to be some crazy hot stove. And I think we're going to have some fun shows. So listen, I want to thank everybody for another great year in the books on the talking Mets podcast. I appreciate every time you tune in and listen to this show, whether you listen for five minutes, the whole show, 50% of the show, 25% of the show, the fact that you dedicate any portion of your day to listen to what I have to say, to the content I bring, to the um, guest I bring is humbling. I never take it for granted. We have grown tremendously this year. I mean, the fan-sided podcasting network has been a boom for us, has allowed me, and I, I think you've noticed, to invest in some more technology and get some more recognition I couldn't ask for more. Leaving Blog Talk Radio was a um, was a tough thing because I they were there at the beginning and I was very loyal to them. And we had a little uh, challenge moving the RSS feed over. If you remember, there was about a week or so where a lot of people couldn't get the show. So hey, all good things uh, take time. There's always uh, little potholes on the journey, but it's a fun journey, and I'm looking forward to more in 2022. Only good things. We only continue to grow. The audience only continues to grow. Your engagement is awesome. You guys are awesome. Happy New Year. Enjoy the New Year. I hope you enjoyed this special edition of the program. And uh, looking forward to talking to everybody in the New Year. Our next show will be January 9th. And stay tuned. I got a good one. I got a real good one, and I I think you're going to enjoy it. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmedspodcast.com. Of course, you can send me a tweet. At Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at com No G, Mike Silva at podcast.com Of course, I want to thank Kevin O'Malley, Catholic Athletes for Christ, and uh, Mrs. Joan Hodges for their participation in today's show. And Kasia Kennedy. Yeah, maybe those are like 10, 12, 13 years old, those segments. But, hey, thanks for doing me a favor coming on, even if it was a little bit a while ago. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Happy New Year. Enjoy your New Year celebration. See you in 2022. Till then, take care, everybody.